Welcome to the Sorry-Eyed Effect. I'm Steph. And I'm Jen. On this podcast, we'll be chatting about all things Williams Syndrome. The ups and downs, and what it's like living with Williams Syndrome. We're excited to share our community with you. Thanks for being here. Hi guys! Hi! Oh, yeah! I, I still love the purple. I love the purple in your hair. It's so great. How are you? Exhausted, but yeah, it's just been a couple of rough weeks for me. Hopefully, it but, gets better. Yeah, yeah. I actually feel a lot better than I did a few weeks ago. So good. Yeah. Good. Well, that's great. Have um, you been able? and stuff because i know you were saying you weren't like feeling like eating you got to eat i know i try to but every time i eat i get sick and oh i mean just from being sick i've lost 10 pounds i mean that sounds like what i want i get sick (laughs) 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 well you know we're just happy to see your face and we're happy that to hear that it sounds like things are getting a little bit better. We interviewed a couple awesome people today. Uh, and oh, wow. one, I think you heard me say that Amy Nussbaum, who is on the board of trustees, and she has a little girl with Williams syndrome. She's just loving the podcast. And she was so looking forward to talking with you. And, um, so we'll just have to have her back because she's got yeah, a, she's a fascinating, she's a fascinating woman and her stories is really spectacular. She got on and she was like, well, wait a minute. Like, I don't want to talk to you too. She's like, I don't, you're not Steph. And then, uh, and then we talked with uh, Robin Pegg, who is uh, the education consultant for the WSA. Um, And and she's, she's really awesome. And And it was really selfishly, it was fun for me because obviously I have a, you know, we're, we're we're still, Jen and I are still in the, in the, the, the school uh conversations and and talking Mm. about our kids education and stuff but but you also it sucks that uh that you know you're still feeling a little uh under the weather but hopefully actually i have some really amazing news remember when i went to the prom yeah they want me to do their fashion show saturday fashion show that's so cool yeah i was the first one picked again for the fashion show well that's because they know they know they know they know they know talent when they see it yeah you guys um dude you look so awesome at prom i was like oh my god you look amazing so do you have to walk because you're late well i'm not gonna be wearing this stupid stuff that they made me wear for that i'm not happy with this at all (laughs) I hate it. Excuse my mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, it's been so great to see you um, and and see your face and hear your voice. Steph. Last year at convention, you had made a comment, Robin, in a, in a, I don't remember something about math. So this year for, for sixth grade, we put Stella in gen ed math. And like literally within the first like three weeks, the teacher called me and said, like, I don't think she can do it. And I was like, yes, she can. We're going to skip all that stuff because that's what our Williams syndrome person told us to do. And you're going to give her a calculator and we're going to make sure she knows how to like put those you know, functions in and 
like fast forward to the end of the year and they're like, holy crap, she's doing it. We are like shocked and surprised <laughs> and happy. And they're like, tears are coming out of their eyes. And I'm like, I know. Yeah. That, that's the stuff. I mean, I mean, I've said it, I've said it all those years ago. I mean, because that's what the research said. And, and then I started to work in the schools and then I started to watch what happened. And then I'd find these teachers who were like, all right, tell me, tell me what to do, you know? And I'd be like, here's what I think based on it. And I get this teacher that was willing to be brave and take risks and a family that was willing to let us experiment. And next thing you know, I have kids doing algebra, you know, and next yeah. thing you know, I have a kid in a physics lab and it's like, yes, <laughs> so cool. And then, and then there's kids with Williams syndrome that like math. Yes, well, of course there are. Oh, so that's one of her favorite classes. Yeah, it statistically it makes sense, and it's like, okay, and okay, so maybe this same kid couldn't tell you all their math facts, but no. I'll tell you what. I mean, I'm about to get a doctorate, and I can't tell you all my math facts. I don't know all my <laughs> sevens. I just do repeated addition because that's what I know. Right. I don't also don't know all my nines or my twelves. So, you know, that's like a real thing. So why, why is that? Why do we hold this learning hostage? Because we can't do this thing. That doesn't make sense to me. And then why do we keep the kids on the hamster wheel of math facts for 157 years like that doesn't make any sense so I, I don't know i just i want people to look at education a little bit differently and um and especially for kids with williams syndrome i mean i was just talking to a school yesterday and god bless the, the psychologist he was um talking about the full-scale iq of this child and I always try to be really politically correct and really supportive of the teams. And I said, you know, I appreciate that you're reporting those scores, but I will tell you the aggregate score is meaningless. What we want is the disaggregate scores. That's what we want to know about. And because the profile of this child and what they're capable of is not what you're seeing on that piece of paper. We need academic performance data because that data is going to tell us what to do. And I will tell you, every bit of progress that this child makes hinges on your teaching team and it hinges on instruction. And how you teach is how they will learn. How do you... Um, like? Is there any tips or any anything that you have have found in 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 your work about how to encourage teachers to be those risk takers to be to, to say yeah you know what uh, it 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 will be it will make things maybe uh, a little not even necessarily harder but different uh, yeah. but it's worth doing it's worth doing how is there is I mean or is it just a matter of of identifying uh identifying that teacher from the outset uh, and and also just knowing that some teachers are always going to be resistant to yeah teaching I, special ed it's some of many of those things a lot of times i tell 
part of it's easy because the kids have Williams syndrome because they're just wonderful to start with, you know? So part of it's that, right? And then the other part of it is a lot of times I will tell the teachers, I will say, you know how in your career, especially in special education, there's that one kid or that little group of kids that those are the kids that you can literally like stake your career on. You know, these are the, these are the kids that people write books about. These are the kids that the after school specials happened, you know, whatever it is, I'm dating myself. That was a 70s thing, <laughs> but, 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 but I said, this kid with Williams syndrome has the potential to be that kid for you. And all I need you to do is trust me. Just trust yeah. me. And a lot of times that is also a big factor is to get that teaching team to take a risk, to just trust. And so like those relationships for me are so important. It's why I'm so adamant with families when I go into a meeting or I, you know, participate in something and like, do please, 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 please. You never, ever tell them that I'm an advocate because I am not an advocate. I mean, in school districts and stuff like that, being an advocate is, you know, unfortunately become a real dirty word, right? And it kind of, yeah, it, you know, sets everybody's hair on fire. So, you know, that's, I, I never want them to tell them, to tell people that. I said, I'm an educational consultant and my biggest job is to be a teaching partner with that teaching team. So my job is to help decode the Williams syndrome so that they can teach. And, you know, and most of the time, I would say 98% of the time that works. Once in a blue moon, I will still have people who are really defensive um, and really worried that, you know, that they're in trouble. And so then it takes a little extra work to kind of get them to sort of settle down and, we can start having a conversation about what works. Is your role changing with like WSA or is it staying the same? Are you adding more or less? Um, I actually think my role is, it's becoming more polished, which I'm super excited about. Um, I think in the polish, it's also getting, getting some more exposure. Like it's, it's really kind of exciting. Like I mean, like the WSA has offered the services that I provide to families for years, but this year I feel like it is rock steady as far as people taking advantage of it, which has been really exciting. Like I have office hours that I do pretty much every Friday and, you know, on a weekly basis, you know, at least one of those slots is booked every week. And the um, number of new families that are, you know, asking questions and sending me IEPs to read and whatever, you know, or the number of schools even that are calling to say, hey, can you do a training for our school? That's super exciting to be able to build capacity. And, you know, like a lot of times I can record those so the schools can then use them later for PD. You know, I've worked really close with Carolyn to kind of refine slides in the slide deck that I do for those trainings. Um, you know, and then we had the Soul to Story podcast, which, you know, 
last I had checked with Sarah, you know, I mean, we had an average of about 20 ish people or so that were on every single episode and participated live on every single episode. But the number of people that are watching the recordings is huge, which that's, that's also super exciting. So, you know, like Carol and I have talked about that. And then um, out of the soul, the story, we, Carolyn and I came up with um, the recommended reading curriculums um, as far as intervention and, um, you know, the actual basils and stuff like that and how they apply to the simple view of reading equation. So mm-hmm. what, what equals reading? And so um, I put together this resource and then the other thing Carolyn and I um, are working on, I just need her final approval is a draft letter so that families can send this to their school and say, you know, here, here's the draft letter, you know, this is from, you know, the people at the Williams and Rome Association to just help get some justification for why they're asking for what they're asking for when it comes to reading instructions. So, Mm -hmm. um, and the research that that's based on. So those, and those came out of those conversations, which was so cool to have during this old story podcast, because the families were like, this is what I need. This would help me. That, that was huge. So as far as like my role, in some respects, it's still the same thing. I'm, you know, I'm still kind of my biggest job is to take all the research and stuff that the researchers do, translate that into parent speak or teacher speak and say, okay, fine. If we have all this great research, what does it mean in little tiny chairs in second grade or third grade or sixth grade or seventh grade or high school? What does that mean? So it's that. It's also to kind of keep track of the resources that we have available. We need a lot of support and a lot of resources in and around transitions. So so that would be cool. And we need a lot of work in math. But that is something that Carolyn and I have um, ongoing conversations about and are working on that. So you made me a little misty eyed over here and I, and I'm going to get your quote wrong, but like our kids with Williams syndrome could be one of those kids that teachers look at after, you know, through their teaching history and say like that child and teaching, I'm going to get all crying, changed the course of my career. Right. And changed how I thought about teaching, not just people with disabilities, but all my kids. And um, I think you're right when they are open to it, when you can find an educator that is open to it and will listen, um, it just, it pays more dividends than they realize. I mean, obviously it pays dividends for me as a parent, it pays yeah. dividends for Stella. She loves math. She loves math and she loves reading. Yeah. Um, gen ed class, Stella's in gen ed class a hundred percent of the time. And it takes a lot of work. Like yeah. you were saying, like you can't purr all day. Literally, there was a day where Stella was learning area, like how to calculate calculate area. And I started using like or plotting, right? Like the plotting points. And I started using curse words because that's her favorite thing. And so we like had a curse word for A and a curse word for B and a curse word for C. And I'm like, you know, how many bleep bleeps are we moving over? How many bleep bleeps are we moving up? And she got it. Sometimes you just yep. gotta think outside of the box. You know, it's funny. I there's teachers and therapists that I have worked with over the years with different kids who are still my friends 
you know, to this day. And I worked with them and those kids almost 20 years ago now. And and it's really exciting, you know, like to, to see how learning to teach that kid, you know, like you talked about, Jen, has changed them fundamentally as a teacher. You know, they, um, there's a, there's a math teacher in Texas that she, she said, I've ever since that kid, I've never been the same because, you know, all the research said he couldn't. And I just kept thinking he could. And she said, and then we did it. We set it up so that he could. Now, can they also fall into, you know, that idea of perceived difficulty where they look at a task and they're like, oh yeah, nope, nope, that looks hard. I'm not going to, oh, I'm not even going to try. Absolutely. They could totally do that. But the same kid, if you take that task and break it down, give them the tools they need to be successful, model it, you know, that it's chunked into that same kid will be like, oh dude, okay, I can do that you know, and they'll do it one step at a time. And little by little, you obliterate those behaviors. And then they have that success. And then if they've made you happy on top of it, you've now appealed to their DNA as somebody with Williams syndrome. And, you know, life is good, right? You know, so those are sort of the the tools that I try to teach teachers. It's like, use the stuff you know, and also use the fact that they have Williams syndrome to help you, it can be a really good teaching tool, a really good teaching tool. What are like the top three things that based on the work that you've done that you suggest if anybody's interested in in their kiddo and their education and um, how that looks for a Williams syndrome learner, where, where are like the three places they start? I think the number one thing is placement. So Kids with Williams syndrome respond really well to peer mentors. And so when we want to look at kids' success in school, many much of that hinges on their ability to be a student and act like a student. So can they follow a line? Can they take care of their stuff? Can they get things out that they need to get out? All of those sort of soft skills of being a student. And so... That's where general education placement, where they're learning classroom routines and all of those instructional routines are really, really important. Um, when you see kids that are in primarily special education placements, especially kids with a one-on-one, we see a lot of learned helplessness where we have kids that are very content to have someone else do it for them. And that's not going to help them when they're 25 years old. It just isn't. And it starts in kindergarten. Adulthood starts in kindergarten. So we really need kids to to do things and to learn to do things, which leads me to the next thing, which is visuals. Kids with Williams syndrome typically have some measure of working memory deficit, which means you can't, um, as a teacher, say, all right, I'm going to pass out this paper and I want you to get your pencil and your glue stick and your scissors and get ready. And then I'm going to give you some instructions. So the kiddo with Williams syndrome maybe got their pencil out, maybe, Mm -hmm. but didn't do the rest of it. And so what you need is for someone to write that stuff down 
put it down in a picture schedule, something. And then what you don't do is keep telling them, just point to your list because that's the other thing is with Williams syndrome, what I see in classrooms is the verbal prompting, which we have a propensity to teachers, God bless us. We can't shut up. Um, but we will keep talking. Well, every time you talk, it's a conversation. What they were supposed to remember has gone flat out of their head. They don't remember that. So if you be quiet and leave them thinking on that line of thinking and just point to your list, now you have a kid that's continuing to problem solve. So very important. Um, so where to start? Placement. You're going to get better social skills. You're going to get better student skills, better development of soft skills. Then make sure you watch the prompting. Very important because that will also contribute to learned helplessness. And the last thing is normalize error. Normalize failure. Let kids try. Let them make mistakes, build resilience, get kids that are like, I can try this again. I can do this again. All the academics will come later, but we need this foundation of soft skills for them to be functioning adults. Uh, so Robin, uh, so people can reach out to you through the Williams Syndrome website. Uh, your information is on there. Uh, the email I'll, uh, when we post this episode. We'll put your email in there so people can reach out to you for more information. Uh, you also uh, are available at access360edu.com. Uh, Speaking for Jen, I feel okay saying this. Uh, we feel so very lucky um, to have you in our lives and um, and have your have your brain working on behalf of our kids' brains. Oh, well, thank you. I. I am very blessed to be a part of this community. I mean, the, my work with Williams Syndrome has utterly changed my life, utterly changed my life. And I could not be more grateful to the whole entire community for people being willing to let me come in and watch what their kids can do and work with their teams. And, you know, and, and that's what I'm here for. I'm here to support the teams and the kids. Hello, Amy. How are you? Good. How are you guys? I am good. So I've met you before and you have the cutest little sweetheart with Williams syndrome. Tell us about Libby. So Libby is five. She'll be six in July. She's just about to finish kindergarten in a month, which I cannot believe because when she first went to start kindergarten, I kept thinking, how is this going to happen? I just couldn't imagine her in a five-day program for seven hours each day um, and she just rocked it. And I mean, rocked it. So I'm super proud of her and can't believe there's only a month left. <laughs> um, and she is adorable <laughs> and very easy to love. And she went into kindergarten not knowing even like what a letter is to coming out of kindergarten, being able to identify a lot of letters and make sounds for some of the letters which is especially exciting because she's mostly nonverbal. Uh, she really only has about five-ish spoken words, um, but she can sing over a hundred songs. And it's just constantly like name that tune all day with Libby because she just wants the Alexa to play the song she's thinking of. And so we have to 
guess what song she's singing and then ask Alexa to play that song. Oh, she's so cute. I love that. So yeah. she can sing she can sing the words of these songs, but in day-to-day -day life, she's not. Yeah, it's hard for me to explain when I say she sings over 100 songs. I don't mean using words. She's just singing okay. on an open vowel, the entire song on an open vowel. So I know for a lot of kiddos with Williams syndrome, a lot of speech therapists and caregivers, you know, they would sing a line and then leave the last word for the kid to say. And that's how children develop speech through music when they have Williams syndrome. And Levy, that is not the path she's taking. <laughs> she will just sing on an open vowel the whole time. She will fill in, you know, the blank spaces if we don't say it, but not with a word, with just a sound. I'm going to have to see this now. You're going to have to post it as part of your okay. like Williams syndrome awareness <laughs> activities. I, yes. I would love, I would love to hear it. Um, okay. I'll well, try to remember. So fifth, five years old. And mm -hmm. I totally understand, even though it's different. Stella is in sixth grade and like, I could not believe at the start of the year, I was like, I cannot believe we're going into sixth grade. And like, how is this going to work? And fast forward, same as you, I'm like frantic now at the end of the year. And I'm like, we did it. And now we're going into seventh grade. Right. Um, it just happened. It is <laughs> so exciting and so busy. How, tell for those of you who don't know you a little bit about your Williams syndrome journey, how, how Libby got diagnosed and, and how you guys got to where you are today. Sure. So Libby was born um, prematurely at 31 weeks and her biological mother is very sick with addiction. So she was born drug exposed. And I, I, in my gut, I think there was also some racial bias on behalf of the doctors for why they didn't dig deeper into all of Libby's medical complexities when she was born. She stayed in the NICU for two months. She had double hernia surgery when she was in the NICU. She had hydrocephalus, which is um, excess fluid on your brain. She had pulmonary stenosis in her heart and a very low birth weight, of course, born at 31 weeks. She was only two pounds, 12 ounces. Uh, it wasn't until her six month, it wasn't until I switched hospitals really, because I had a lot of difficulties with the hospital we started at with her. Um, so I switched teams, I switched hospitals. When she was six months old, her new cardiologist was the first to suggest genetic testing. I think all of the other doctors just assumed this is a kid who comes from um, unaddicted parents. And because of her race, we're just going to assume she's just global developmental delay and no one dug deeper. So unfortunately, this cardiologist, who are still our wonderful cardiologist to this day, didn't test for Williams syndrome, but other genetic tests were done. Uh, so she wasn't diagnosed until she was two and a half. And the way she was diagnosed was she went to her neurosurgeon appointment, because at this point, she'd already had three brain surgeries under her belt, um, one balloon catheter heart surgery, and one open heart surgery. And so those first few years, she was in and out of hospitals and doctor's appointments. I mean, the first six months, like every two to three weeks, I was bringing her to someone to be seen. Um, but two and a half, she was getting checkups for her shunt that she has in her brain for her hydrocephalus and Chiari malformation. And her neurosurgeon said from her MRI that she has a larger cerebellum. And I thought, no one has ever mentioned to me that she has a larger cerebellum. I don't even know what that means. So I spent the rest of the morning Googling what does larger cerebellum even mean? 
And I found that people with autism and some people with Williams syndrome can have larger cerebellums. And I knew what autism was, hmm. but I had no idea what Williams syndrome was. I'd never heard of it. So I start Googling Williams syndrome, the Williams syndrome association website pops up. I'm reading all about it. And I, it was like seeing my daughter mm-hmm. in front of me. She had, you know, typical facial features of those with Williams syndrome. Um, Libby was very emotionally dysregulated and needed music on almost a hundred percent of her waking hours to be regulated. Her pulmonary stenosis in her heart. Um, some people with Williams syndrome do have hydrocephalus and Chiari malformation. The double hernia that she had when she was born has, I mean, it just went like, I mean, we were just checking boxes. So I called her pediatrician and I asked him to do, um, some blood work because I think she has Williams syndrome and he didn't know what Williams syndrome he pretended he did, but I know he did. And then I asked her cardiologist to do blood work. And he said, you know, I really don't think she has it. People with Williams syndrome typically have this kind of heart condition, but because I had spent hours Googling and researching, I said, no, they also have pulmonary stenosis sometimes. Yes. So I, and I, I really think she has this, please order the blood work for her. And so he did. And like right when the pandemic hit March, 2020, I got a phone call um, that confirmed that she had Williams syndrome and that changed our lives. And I, we have a really rare story because um, I was so relieved to find out that she had Williams syndrome because to me, when, when she hit two, I knew that she was never going to catch up, that something was different about her. And I had a very difficult time accepting developmental delay like it's what is that even just developmental mm-hmm. delay like something's going on with my child that we don't know there was a missing piece of the puzzle so to find out that it was william syndrome i was thrilled to be able to identify what it is is is, is that what- sure i mean i was thrilled to have it something to hold on to that i could use in schools and use in hospitals but i was mm-hmm. also just thrilled of the diagnosis of william syndrome itself because of what i had i had read about people because what with you william syndrome. Yeah, yeah. it seemed like this this is incredible you're telling me that my child will you know have anxiety and have cardiology issues but will also be very joyful and want to hug me all the time and will probably be very musical sign me up this sounds amazing and it and it you know i don't want to diminish the challenges that it brings because it brings many but i i i mean aside from my children themselves the greatest gift i've been given is Libby having williams syndrome can you talk a, a little bit about you know so as as life has gone on uh, with Levy and the rest of your family, can you talk a little bit about uh, about your involvement in, in advocacy for Williams syndrome and your involvement on the uh, and and how you came about becoming part of the um, the board, the board of trustees? Well, I think my first step was joining Instagram because I I've never been on Facebook, I've never been a social media person, but especially during the pandemic and never having heard of Williams syndrome before, I thought. Instagram was a good place to start to find community and learn more and find people for Libby. And it was a good start and it's super fun. And I have to limit myself on it because it is addicting. So I found some people on there and I found some people in the Chicagoland area that I've become very close with because it's just an instant bond and friend maker um, to be in this small community we're in. And um, one of those people was Scott Ottenheimer, who has been a board member. Mm-hmm. 
So he recommended me for the board and um, I then joined the board. Um, and for years now, for a few years now, we do our annual block party in Chicago, um, our Williams Syndrome Awareness Chicago block party in May. And it's right outside our, we shut down the street right outside our house and invite neighbors, friends, family, school, really anyone who wants to come. It, it's a lot of it is for Williams syndrome awareness and just disability awareness in general, which is so important. But a lot of it um, is because I worry about Levy's safety. She's a black, female, disabled, mostly nonverbal kid and who doesn't understand, um, who doesn't have perfect receptive language. So if someone says something to her, just anyone, but especially a police officer says something to her, she may not understand what that, what is being asked of her. Um, right now, she doesn't understand streets and cars. So there's a lot of danger around her. So part of my purpose in throwing this black party every year is so that her neighbors know about her. Like, hey, this is Libby. This is what she looks like. This is where she lives. So she, luckily she does not know how to open doors yet, but one day soon she will. And if I'm not watching her and she gets out of the house, hopefully a neighbor who's like, hey, that's Libby. Yes. They can intervene and keep her safe. So that's, that's you know, the other motivation behind Williams Syndrome Awareness. Uh, and it's so important because I know my first convention I went to when Stella was diagnosed, um, there was like a whole whole session. I don't think it intended to be this, but it turned into it where basically everybody was talking about how their kids like run out of the house and like run down the street chasing lawnmowers or chasing yeah. police cars. And yeah. you know they have to put these locks on their doors and figure out a way to track their child. And I was like, holy crap, like that <laughs> scares me to death. Right. And so yeah. I think it was another guest we just had on recently where we were talking about community and why community is so important. So the block party is essentially that, right? You're creating this community that sees and recognizes and knows Levy beyond being Levy and having Williams syndrome, like knowing some of those intricacies so that they can support you as a community is really important. Exactly. Well, I do want to ask about it because I saw your post on Instagram um, showing us like all your stuff set out in front of your house for Awareness Week. And I love it. And if I don't know if your page is public where people can view it, but I would love for them yeah. to see it. I think you take a really fresh approach to awareness in general. So tell us about some of the awareness activities you guys are doing for Awareness Month. Well, um, I do hang those posters all over my fence and we have a flag that says love for Levy on our um, front porch and then we hold the block party we also asked Levy's school to put on her you know those digital marquees outside of school so every week this month it's going to say William syndrome awareness so during the month of may it is really just any opportunity we have to share what William syndrome is with everybody we do that what what is so you said that Levy is going into first grade. Um, Next year. What is that looking like for you guys? Um, so that is a giant question mark. So I entered her into the lottery system because we happen to live about five blocks down from one of the high highest ranked elementary schools. That's a lottery school, a magnet school. 
And so I said, I'll take my chances on that school. And we got in, which in Chicago, it's like winning the golden ticket, getting into these schools. Yes. Okay. So I couldn't believe we won and got a seat. And the year was going, is it was and is going so well. Libby's invited to birthday parties. She's invited to play dates. The parents are exceptionally supportive of her being in their children's classroom. I thought the year was going it, it, too good to be true. So uh, a few months in. Don't don't tell me. Me. don't tell me. Don't tell me. It's worth I'm feeling like bigger. foreshadowing. Oh, no. Oh, no. A, a few months in, under the guise of let's review some goals, they call an IP meeting. We revise the goals. I'm like thanking the teachers, thanking the staff. What a wonderful experience this has been. And they're like, wait, we're actually not done yet. We are kicking her out to another school. No. So what Chicago, yes. So what Chicago Public Schools does that I've learned is they have what's called cluster programs, which is just their made up word for self-contained classroom. And they only have these cluster programs at certain Chicago public certain schools. schools. So what they do is they kick all of these disabled children out of these gen ed programs and out of these typical schools and then just send them to the cluster. But what's even worse is how they do that is they Google whatever cluster program is closest to your home. And if there's a spot there, they just give you that spot. So it's not depending on your child's needs at all. So like Levy's needs are to be around typically developing peers, especially as a nonverbal child who's expected to be verbal. So she could be placed in a cluster program with all nonverbal children, which would be horrendous for her. I mean, as is horrendous for, I'm sure, most of the children in these cluster programs to be around non-typical peers. So it, it's not a good design. It's clear that um, we still have a long way to go, that disabled people and their advocates still have to repeat themselves over and over and over again until people believe them and believe us. So because our family is who we are and we're so fortunate, we can fight it. So we've got the lawyer, we've got the advocate. Uh, a handful of parents wrote statements on Libby's behalf, Good. advocating for her and how much they want her and believe that she should stay at her current school. Our developmental pediatrician wrote a letter that she needs to be in gen ed. Our Williams Syndrome geneticist wrote a letter saying she needs to be in gen ed. Robin Pegg, the WSA's educational consultant, wrote a letter saying she needs to be in gen ed. Um, and even with all of this support from experts, from fellow parents, from Libby herself making progress in kindergarten, it's still unclear whether or not we're going to win this case and she'll get to stay at her current school. <laughs> so we find out the hearing date tomorrow, actually. And we'll see. So I don't know what's in store for first grade is the long-winded answer to that question. What happens if you lose? Is that a question I can ask? Are you moving? Sure. Can you move to Colorado? <laughs> <laughs> we're not moving. Um, we're not moving okay. because, um, you, you know, the suburbs of Chicago, some of the suburbs have excellent special education programs. But I have four kids, two are white, two are black. And the suburbs isn't a good place for us, as good of a place, I should say, as being in Chicago is. Mostly, 
It's that I am adamant that I shouldn't have to. This is my home. These are the schools that are provided for my children, including my disabled child, and she should get to go to this school. A big part of school choice for me is where is she going to be safe? Yep. And I know she's safe at this school. I know she's well taken care of at the school. The school is in our neighborhood, which also makes me feel safer, just being in close proximity to it. And that's a big deal. So it's about being around typically developing peers, getting the education she deserves, and sending her where she's going to be safe. Uh, can you talk a little bit about efforts in, in equity and diversity and inclusion? How are we as an organization and as a community trying to address that? So our DEI committee, we may be changing the name, but for right now, it's officially DEI. So our membership has been um, outspoken about needing more diversity, equity, and inclusion in our association for many years. And our um, past executive director, Terry, really tried on this matter. And our current executive director, Dr. Mary, is also trying on this matter. Specifically, she hired an organization called Project Implicit that did our board training for DEI when we met in person in April. And it was really great. I really enjoyed it. Um, It's a great organization. Um, And it was really the first big step that we have to take in a long road ahead of us. We're not just wanting to increase our membership in terms of racial, religious, ethnicity membership. We are also looking to um, expand the core of who a person with Williams syndrome really is. You know, the way a person with Williams syndrome is typically, typically described is being very social and having that cocktail personality and be, being very happy and being very musical. But when you look at the numbers of the medical challenges and issues those with Williams syndrome face, a lot of people with Williams syndrome have anxiety. A lot of people with Williams syndrome are not that musical. So yeah. it really, I mean, as, as people in our community like to say, when you meet one person with Williams syndrome, you've met one person with Williams syndrome. So it's hard. There are similar characteristics and there are similarities, but we really want to be inclusive of all people with Williams syndrome. People with Williams syndrome can be very different from one another. And we're just really tr- looking at changing some of our language and changing some of our opportunities for those with Lyme syndrome. That we really want to start taking a look at and making sure that we're being inclusive, making sure that we're putting um, resources out there that people can actually get a hold of, you know, because not not everybody has the resources. Instagram. <laughs> but not, but not everyone has the resources financial or depending on where they live to have a music therapist to have the speech mm-hmm. therapist to have the occupational therapist so so what are we doing for people who are in that boat that's you know we really want to start taking a strong look at that and making sure that we're an association that's here for all people with Williams syndrome and it is important that we consider those um, other ways that Williams syndrome presents itself. I mean, my daughter, Stella, she barks at people when she feels anxious, right? And it's like, oh, we hear that, you know, they're super bubbly and they walk into a room and they command it. And I'm like, well, yeah, Stella will command it eventually, but first she's going to bark at all of you and tell you to F off and not look at her, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's a manifestation 
of her anxiety and anxiety is part of Williams syndrome too. And, you know, that doesn't mean she is less or doesn't belong in the Williams syndrome community. Right. Um, so I think that that's good work you're doing. Yeah. And to your point, I think that's what we've been so scared of and maybe rightfully so of, you know, if we market ourselves as a community in this positive light, we'll get funding. People will take care of our children, our loved ones, our siblings. Um, but it's really all it's inspirational. Being, yes, it's inspirational, sure. Um, but it's also saying it, it's also maybe putting the message forth that, oh, if your child isn't this, they're not as valuable, which we all can agree is not the case and is not, not true. true. Right. So we want to make sure that everyone in our community is represented and heard and has an opportunity and feels included. Well, that's uh that's really wonderful. Everything that you're doing for Libby and 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 people like her uh, is really really fantastic, and we're um, super super happy that you could join us today. Thank thank for asking me. I feel so honored. <laughs> Truly. You've been listening to the Starry-Eyed Effect presented by the Williams Syndrome Association. The show is hosted by Jennifer Keaton and Stephanie Karen, and produced by me, Joel Lisbon. Theme song by Tommy Barbarella and Mariella Elm. Got a question for Steph and Jen? Email us at podcast at williams-syndrome.org. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and maybe it will get featured on a future episode. Make sure to like and subscribe to The Starry-Eyed Effect wherever you get your podcast delights.